cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on February the 8th, 2008. Newcomers, look into the site, cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and download as much information as you wish, because scattered all through it, there's lots of little pieces of the puzzle which you can start putting together, and you must put it together for yourself. Now, that's the whole key to understanding. You'll, you'll put it together in your own fashion uh, that your particular mind can comprehend and make sense of. Otherwise, you're learning by rote, and people who learn by rote are just following something or someone else's idea. And also look into Alan Watt's sentient, sentinel.eu for transcripts, which you can download in the various languages of Europe. And you can print them up and pass them around to your friends. And for the last few minutes, really, just before the show started, I was wondering what to talk about tonight. That's generally what I do. I'm busy all day long, and I sit down for a couple of minutes and ponder. And sure enough, something always pops in. And I was thinking about how far back this agenda goes. It's staggering. It's staggering in its complexity. And yet, uh, the more you understand and learn and study, uh, the more understandable it becomes with all of its complexity. And you begin to wonder about the use of computers even, and how far back they actually go to enable those at the top to bring all of this together 
so so amazingly well. They've had computers, of course, much longer than we know of. We were always shown the old big machines. They made sure we saw the big machines on newscasts and so on back in the 60s, uh, which uh, were about six feet tall with big tape, to, reel-to-reel tapes going all the time. But in higher levels, they, they were way beyond that, into microcircuitry, way beyond that. So again, one is, is to do with presentation, how things are presented to a public and how they really are. They're always worlds apart, absolute worlds apart. Well, the news is coming up, and I'll be back with more after the following messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're back cutting through the matrix and just talking about how far back this agenda actually goes and it's interesting living through uh, your own little part of it and I can look back and look at different people I met in my life I can remember back in the early 70s meeting uh, a fellow who had been uh, involved with some British intelligence agency who had a heart attack when he was about 36 or 7 and he had to go into teaching to survive a less stressful job than he thought at the time. But his speciality, it seemed, was in planning future, future societies and the types of citizens that the government wanted to have. And what he did tell me was that Part of the conditioning or reconditioning of people is to break down the old conditioning. You have gradually at first and then speed it up because, as he said himself, uh, people are very traditionally minded. And we actually realized that uh, up until the 70s or the 60s anyway, people used to go into a job for life. And they had at least that, at least that, if you want to call it comfort, although a lot of the jobs were pretty awful. But they had that to fall back on. But he told me, he said, eventually, he says, things will speed up so quickly uh, that you'll, you'll have a whole bunch of jobs throughout your life. And companies and corporations will move, he said. They'll go international and move. This was all on the slate back in the 70s. But he said there'd be massive changes within the way that people looked at society itself because they would be given uh, an upgrade, a kind of conditioning to make them view all different segments of society in different lights. Uh, he meant propaganda and reinforcement and repetition. But he also mentioned that to do so, whereas an individual or entire people, it's necessary to first create a sort of disassociative state within the people themselves. Now that's what they do when they catch a spy or they try to brainwash someone. They have to break down the, the idea of who you are to yourself. Everything that you think makes up you with your opinions on things, your place in, in, in the universe amongst all the people you know, all that has to be broken until you can't trust it yourself anymore 
and then they can recondition you and feed you new information to make the new you. And that was to be done to society. And it's been very successful because they'd already been doing it back then with the whole hippie movement, the blending of Eastern religions with the old enforced and reinforced religions and putting them together, something that Blavatsky and others talked about in the 1800s, they would do this. They knew, how, they knew they'd do that back then. And the reason they picked the ones from India mainly were because if they could convince the public to accept them, the young members of the public, and that was their target, uh, then it's much easier to create a disassociative state where, where nothing is kind of real or permanent anymore. Everything is partly illusion. You can't trust your own thoughts. It could be all hallucinations, for all you know. And half of them back then were certainly having hallucinations with LSD that was about at the same time. And this was encouraged from the top down. But he also mentioned back then, uh, because Britain and most countries, even though they were given uh, the postal codes to write on your letters at the end of the address, he said, he said, you know, this won't be used for another 10 or 15 years. They're just training the public to do it automatically before they even have the equipment uh, set up to do it. That's how far ahead they were training the public. And he said it would consist mainly of about, of about um, between six and eight letters, two blocks. At first you get one set of letters, maybe three. That will be a postal code. He said that will be your area. He said that eventually they'll give them a second part to that number and that will be your specific residence, and it was to be for satellite grid identification. You could actually have you referenced on a satellite, right down, pinpointed to where you actually lived, that little house or apartment. And that was back in the early 70s, from a guy who was in, in the know. Now, getting back to what he, he mentioned about the, the form of dissociation, where you... You create that aspect in a person until they can no longer trust everything that they believed in and even their own place in the world amongst all their friends and, and all of that. That's your complete id, as they call it, complete you, your persona, plus everything else about you and how you relate to everyone else and how you think they relate to you. That was kind of shown in the matrix with a, a simulation. Well, here's part of the further part the next part of the dissociation process, because this is from a newspaper in the UK, it's called Metro. I believe it's, it's a, a free one, it's website, metro.co.uk. And this is a tabloid type paper that's given out there free. This is Tuesday, February the 5th, 2008. What if the room you are in, the country you are call home, the planet you inhabit, in fact, the entire universe, were a simulation. What if you are more avatar than individual? This is this virtual. We know what's about avatars and so on. They're all pushing. The product of an information processor churning out algorithms to create virtual space, time, energy, and matter. What if every thought and feeling you experience is actually the byproduct of a computer subroutine? It's a daft idea, isn't it? Well, one man doesn't think so. In a paper published by Massey University in New Zealand, Dr. Brian Whitworth suggests when looking at the physical laws that govern our universe, the many paradoxes that occur might be best explained if we view ourselves living not in a physical reality, 
but in a virtual reality. In an argument that perhaps sits more comfortably within the realms of philosophy than physics, he asks us to consider simulated reality computer games such as The Sims, and I don't know which of that is. They love Simpsons and Sims because it's a play on us. It's been, it's been the simians, chimps, apes, we're the apes, you see. And they, they love these little puns. So it says here, suppose that one day that the computer code that creates The Sims became so complex that some Sims within the simulation began to think, he argues. Could they deduce that their world was a virtual world? Could they see their world as we see ours now? One of the paradoxes he cites uh, as an example is the creation of the universe from nothing and its outward expansion into that nothingness. He believes, that's a big bang he's on about, he believes that just as a computer system must boot up and start running a program in our virtual universe, this boot up was manifested as what we call a big bang. Likewise, he argues that in computing, all objects that arise from digital processing must be made up of units that have a minimum size, pixels, or the ones and zeros of digital code. He argues that this mirrored inner reality and that quanta, the tiny packets of matter that make up our physical world, serve the same function. And why does a photon of light have a finite speed when theoretically it should be able to whiz through the vacuum of space at limitless velocities. If you think of it as a pixel that can cross the computer screen only as fast as its processor allows, you can see what he is saying. No, well, don't worry about it. According to Dr. Whitworth, there must be some programming geek of a god guiding your every move. So scoff that kebab this weekend, you might just be getting virtually fat. So that was one little item that came out from this magazine called Metro. Now, what I've noticed down through the years is how we get the same blurb from different sources in different countries at the same time, and they're coordinated. That's how you change culture. Because what he's saying here, this character, has also been said by Nick Bostrom at the Department of Philosophy at Oxford University. And the first version he put out was in May, 2001, the final version um, was July 2002. So one guy here in one country has copied the work of another to get a point across that we're supposed to start parroting and using our conversations. And it says here, abstract, the paper argues that at least one of the following propositions is true. One, the human species is very likely to go extinct before reaching a post-human stage. Two, any post-human civilization is extremely unlikely to run a significant number of simulations of their evolutionary history or variations thereof. Three, we are almost certainly living in a computer simulation. It follows that the belief that there is a significant chance that we will one day become post-humans who run ancestor simulations is false, unless we are currently living in a simulation. Now, this is, sounds gobbledygook until you think it through. It's meant to create a, for a sort of dissociation within your own mind and have you question reality uh, down to its very, very basics. That's the whole point. As I say at the beginning, the, the guy who worked in uh, one of the British intelligence agencies basically told me that's how it works. So here are different professors, different doctors, different universities, 
all saying the same thing within a relatively short span of time within from each other, using the same terminology, even the Big Bang and all the rest of it, and trying to say that, that ancestors eventually will create simulations of us, and those simulations made by supercomputers might start thinking they're actually real. And then you'll have little youngsters parting this stuff and wondering if they are real or a simulation. Because we are all supposed to go in to this simulated reality very shortly. When the Pentagon and every other warfare department across the planet has set up the copies of you within simulations, using all the info they have on you and your personality, they mean business. Not doing this for pleasure. This is the Pentagon we're talking about. Back with more after the following messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix and simply showing a little corner of it, pulling up a corner like you see in as to how we don't simply evolve down through time but how everything is planned on a mass scale. A mass scale. Giving the internet to the public didn't happen spontaneously. It was given to the public for specific reasons. And that was to bring in a complete system of surveillance and eventually to get everyone so hooked on it, you could once again alter the reality and bring them into a virtual reality before they eventually just give you a chip. And then anything that happens will happen right inside your head. You won't need a computer at all. Step-by-step programming, really. And even before they gave uh, the computer to the public, it's amazing how we seem to think there's a big Santa Claus out there that just works fervently for our happiness. And the corporations are somehow part of that. There's nothing further from the truth. Because we have to remember that during the whole Cold War, books were churned out one after another, declaring that whoever had the most science and technology and secrets and technology would win the war. That meant that big front organizations that became popular brand names, mainly in electronics, uh, had to be financed into existence and run and guided by MI6 and CIA. And sure enough, they have been. In other words, during a Cold War, they couldn't allow an independent company to come into existence that might discover something that would put them all out of business and take over. They had to have the lead all the time. It was a war of technology. They didn't allow competition. They didn't allow any other innovations or technologies to come into being that could be used by any enemy side. And therefore, the big corporations that you know today, including all the, the traditional Windows and, and Microsoft and all the rest of it, was all part of that structure, just like the Verachip is as well. It's part of a military-industrial complex that set up a true public-private partnership where they, make, they create real corporations, real businesses, they make real items, but they're staffed by their own people at the top, just like the media, the top media people uh, generally have uh, been trained by your security organizations in every country. Everything that we take for granted, mainly through repetition, you turn on the news, it's there every night, it's the same guy. Everything you take for granted 
is only reinforcing it. The repetition reinforces the lie. And you don't, you don't question anymore. You trust repetition. And it's the same with the companies, the corporations, and the products that they dish out to us. And they all happen to have the upgrades on the, on the best brand, all the top brands at the same time. They all use the same systems, the new technology in the same systems at the same time. I used to wonder about the old VHS tapes and how that, how, how come they always upgraded to a better quality at the same time? Every machine just appeared there, every brand just appeared with the same technology in it. And it's the same with computers. That tells you there's a controlling force behind all of them that guides all of them, in fact dictates to all of them, and dishes out the technology to all of them at the same time. That's why it happens that way. Going back to the guy I was talking about that did work for intelligence until he had the heart attack, and he didn't live long after that, by the way. He died only lasted a couple of years. And he was talking about how to dissociate the people to get them to question everything, even the very basic foundations that makes you, you, a very important part. And we know that the top boys used all kinds of things, strobes, white light, lack of sleep, all the stuff, the same things that cults do. Cults do the same thing. They, they give you, uh, they deprive you of sleep, they keep you weak through a certain diet and all the rest of it. And, and the, the intelligence agencies were using the same techniques because these were known down through the many centuries uh, of how to break people down and then reshape them, remold them into be, being willing and obedient servants. Nothing changes. If the method works, you don't change it. And yet to see it working on a mass scale is staggering. And to actually hear, like Brzezinski said, the people repeating what they're given, the nonsense that they're given under the guise of news, when you hear them repeating it in public to each other the following day, is rather terrifying. Especially when they, they repeat it verbatim. They've added nothing to what they heard. The opinions that they've been given, in fact, and they are given opinions, news is supposed to give you commentary on what happened, what was said. They don't do that anymore. They give you opinions. They give you your actual opinion. And you hear the public repeating the opinion, telling you that they have no opinions of their own. That's become their opinion. That's terrifying. So Brzezinski knew, again, that this would happen. The man who talked about the coming of the Internet, for instance, and what a tool it would be, and how the public would perceive it, and what its real intent was. Completely different again. Religion has always been used. Religion, on a very high scale, has been used to control people for social order, and for a set, generally a fixed type of social and class order as well. Europe, for instance, for many centuries had big curtains. You'll see that the, 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 sometimes where the rods used to go across the top of the arches inside uh, the, the roof. And they had huge curtains where they used to section off the wealthy from the poor, the masses. They didn't want to upset the wealthy at the miserable state of the poor around about them, so they drew curtains so they wouldn't have to see them. Back with more after the following messages and tell you where this is going. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. 
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, coming to the Matrix, and I was trying to get down to how societies are controlled down through the ages, and as I say, religion, what used to be called orthodox religions, was used to the maximum to keep a status quo in place, and that was really kings, queens, and all their other offspring, royalty, and cousins, and so on, lords, etc., and a, a, a middle class, a smaller middle class, and then the peasant class, all working along some road that really didn't change too much for many centuries. And then along came the Industrial Revolution, and it's called revolution because it changed everything. And suddenly all the people who worked on the farms were, were pushed off into the cities. They were pretty well forced through various laws to get into the cities and staff the machines. And then, of course, with the improvement of machines, they began to lay off the people because they didn't need so many because that's what commerce is all about. It's nothing to do with giving you work. That's only a side effect of, or, or what they call a, a, a nasty necessity, giving you actually employment to make things. And society was guided along particular routes. And that's the era where philosophers came in to contact with government officials and how to do real long-term projections as to where all of this would go. And they, they set up foundations and think tanks that were often chartered by royalty. I mean, they were funded and given a, a royal charter to exist, like a license. And you can't use the term royal anything without a license from the government. That means you speak basically for the crown, for the top establishment. And they projected the future and, and how they would steer it along a particular path. And they realized that everything would have to be changed. Everything would have to be changed. The old order, the old way of viewing things would have to be changed to adapt because they knew that religion would fall away as life became more miserable for what they called the masses who were all working in factories, sometimes 12, 16 hours a day. That was quite common. That was the norm, in fact, at one time. But they also looked towards a post-industrial stage. And they worried about giving even leisure to the masses. Many books were written about it, and that they expressed their fear at the top of the mischief of the masses. If they had leisure time, they might start getting together, discussing their problems, and perhaps even doing something about it on some grand scale. And therefore, they, they, they decided to turn out what they called penny books by the millions. These were novels, hastily written, but exciting novels to keep them all entertained. And they would really fund into existence vaudeville shows, they called them, theatres for the public, where they could go in and watch sort of body acts, as B-A-W-D, not, not B-O-D-Y, body acts, where, where you had uh, laughter and very slapstick sort of comedy, keep them entertained. And they would make sure there were plenty of pubs and bars so that they would have fun rather than become serious and, to say, discuss all their problems, form groups, and maybe even political powers and do something about the state of affairs. So from then on, they were guiding the world along a particular pre-chosen path. And yet, they knew that in a post-industrial era with even perhaps more leisure time, the same problem would still haunt them 
what will they do with the public? How much entertainment can they give them before they get bored even with that? Because we get jaded. We can get jaded with anything, too much of anything. And that's when they hit on the idea of importing a religion after studying the world and the obedience of different people or subjects, as they tend to call them in Britain, and seeing what kind of religion worked on the people and why they worked. And they found that the religions of the East, that's Hinduism and even Buddhism, creates a form of a disassociative state within people until they don't become active in trying to change anything at all. Because nothing really is real in the great scheme of things. If you're simply a thought in the head of Brahma, as he spins round and round, and a mirror image of everything that Brahma's doing or thinking, it's an, a surrealistic uh, way of looking at things. And the big things in life, ambitions fall to the wayside. In fact, that's one of the, the whole processes as you, as you go towards that man, is all ambitions and ego are dropped and left behind you. Because you look at the big picture, big picture is eternity, and so you will neglect even the things, even the responsibilities you might have in this life, and go off to the mountains and meditate. And Buddhism is very, very similar if you follow it through. Buddhism today is, is completely remote from this whole foundation, because Buddhism, like every other religion, had its own little conclave and little meeting with all the different sects that appeared over 300 years a long time ago, and they formulated the new ideas and copied Buddhism back, right, right back into it, the very thing that the founder was trying to get away from. So religion has always been used for mind control, and as I say, the Western establishment had decided to choose those ones in the late 1800s and began to put out their protégés and their, their new high priests that would bring the people in to be the nucleus in the start of it, get followers and give it secrets. Secrets, like Weishaupt said, are guaranteed to bring in converts looking for the answers. Pretend you have secrets. And they would eventually adapt the religion of the West, which was now, uh, had, had, had suffered the consequences of decay through industry and a new way of living. And it was on the way out, but they could adapt those ideas and join them to Eastern religions and then one day create a form of disassociative state to make the people, again, more easily managed. Now, people like Gorbachev, who claims he's an atheist, in his book Towards a New Civilization, tells you he's an atheist in the same book, but he also tells you, he says, we are in the process of creating a new religion which will be based on a form of earth worship, he's meaning sustainability, the greening, all that kind of stuff. But they would teach it to the children in school. And in order, obviously, to get them into that state, you must do an awful lot of lying as well and bending of facts, etc. Because all religions bend lots of facts. And the whole greening movement, sustainability, and all the rest of the global warming has taken tremendous bending of facts to bring into existence. That's why it's not too hard to knock it down if you're a critical thinker, most people unfortunately are not. They believe, as I say, through repetition. Bertrand Russell kept saying that repetition is the way to get it across to the masses. And they can be made to believe anything. So here you are with a new religion being created, which also forms a form of disassociative process. 
the technique again that they use in, in mind control and brainwashing has been used on great masses of people because today most folk cannot tell the difference between reality and fiction. Jax E. Lowell, who was perhaps one of the greatest minds on sociology and the, the, the workings of great societies, said that all fiction that has to do with law courts, lawyers, at war, your government, your government's part in war, uh, to do with um, the law enforcement societies, agencies, and armies, are all fictions. They're all propaganda. Propaganda wrapped up with a human interest story of a hero, her heroine, whatever, to hook the public into it, to give you a completely false impression of what that particular agency or outfit's all about. And, and it works. It works so well. Most police are not hunting down that murderer. Most police are not hunting down the pedophile. Most police are not hunting down whatever. They're out there giving out tickets and bringing in money and keeping their ears open for all kinds of gossip in the area. Most intelligence is gathered by gossip. A law goes into that as well. Even mentioned there was a, a, a technique used that the public could not be made aware of at that time of writing the book. But a lot of it is to do with gossip. But part of it also is to do with an association, an association of Masons and Eastern Stars, especially the Eastern Stars, who live in all communities and even rural areas, and they, they acquire all the gossip of the area. I found this at the last place I worked, because the Grand Master of the Lodge was always taking these, these elder ladies in the hospital, doctor's appointments and so on. They all belonged to the Eastern Star. They were very elderly. And they had the jungle drums. They knew everything was happening to everybody, all the gossip, and he got it all from them. And the local police sergeant that ran the, the area, the next town, belonged to that lodge as well. So he, he passed on the information to him. Now that's how they gather info. Just by casual conversation between neighbors or the local store or whatever. Nothing is ever as it seems. Nothing at all. That's why you have to always be careful what you say to whom. And preferably say very little that matters. Ever. Even to people round about you. That's how information is gathered. And that's what cops have always done. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police that always pushes an image abroad of riding round in circles with lances and red tunics and hats on in formation was set up was set up by the British government for Canada as a paramilitary organization that would go undercover into society to rout out communists. Not riding about on horses. And the CBC did a documentary special on that a few years ago with a lot of the data on it. But they put out the propaganda part, and that's what you remember, horses, red tunics, nice, nice parades, and you clap your hands, and so does the children. That's how you're trained to view things, always from a different perspective than its real function. That's good propaganda, that's good conditioning, that's good mind alteration of perception. And you would take all of this for granted 
and people questioned nothing. The U.S. had mass, a massive overdose with the FBI story and, and stuff like that in the States for years. And the whole point between the FBI was to federalize another federalization, a centralization of government power over people. Anything that would centralize power, even in Marxist philosophy, remember, was essential. Lincoln got a telegraph from Karl Marx congratulating him on beating the South and conquering the South because it says centralization of power is essential for a Marxist doctrine, for that, for that particular doctrine. And then after the centralized power, they give you a period of nationalization, that you feel proud to be who you are. And we're all doing that, having parades and all the rest of it. Your, your boys at the top in the State Department are signing treaties for internationalization. And you don't know anything about it to 20, 30 years later. That's how you manage great herds of people. And I say herds because that's what they call us. We are the human herd. The guy I talked to again back in the 70s, and he told me quite a lot because he knew I was, I was interested and keen and had a mind that could function. But he said, he said the, same, the same thing, that um, nothing happens by chance. The purpose of big agencies is to ensure that nothing, nothing happens on a grand scale by chance. Predictive programming isn't just putting into your mind ideas of how the future, the, the near future and the distant future will be so that you'll accept it as it comes along. It's also a form of altering and distorting perceptions so that you will think in that mode and you will believe this about this organization or the RCMP or whatever. It works very, very well. Nothing is left to chance. And for a fellow who told me quite a few things that would definitely happen 30 years down the road, and they have, he, he did know his stuff. The sad thing is, because the generations are so incredibly separated and that was part of the agenda to destroy the family unit that was number one on the list that was the first thing priority destroy the family especially extended family grannies grandmothers and granddads people with history people who could teach the children and that's what they used to do grandparents used to look after the children that's where you got a lot of your oral history from your education that's been destroyed we know Popman homes and a lot of them sign themselves in homes now and book themselves in thinking it's all quite normal and like Bertrand Russell said the state gives the children their values their new values and the parents are too busy to have ch to time with the children that's why grandparents were so essential all done through time and now that you've separated the, the generations it's quite easy to lead each segment of them the older ones have their magazines, their TV programming. Every specific age is given its own particular slot, time slot on television that look into to keep their reality afloat for them because we like familiarity. We don't like rapid change. And the older you get, the more so. So they always give you shows that will aim at your generation. They've even
even admitted that even things that the Spice Girls and so on were deliberately set up to target a specific age group. And the age group was from about the age of seven years old to about 13. By Madison Avenue, the big advertising companies and so on. The very technique that Bertrand Russell said they would use, they would bring in the big marketing boys, the ones who understood how to manipulate mass herds of people. And it's been done. It's been done perfectly. How much of what you think is real is true? How much do you carry around in your head of utter fallacy? And then to fall into the next step, when you think everything's being shattered, all, all those things that you hang out, you were hanging on to, do you go shopping for something else to replace it? That's what most people do. They shop immediately for, for a, a new religion, a religion that promises them something and security and peace and tells them they're special. They go shopping for them. And they have apparently a whole range to choose from. I say apparently because they're all one and the same. And it's called the New Age. The New Age was given the term by the magazine called the New Age, which was the, t the name of the Royal, the, the Scottish Rite of Freemasons magazine for many years. It's called the New Age. It talked about bringing in this New Age and blending all of these ideas together for a new religion and a new society. I'll be back with more after the following messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and just for the last few minutes of Cutting Through the Matrix I'm going to jump into something that goes along the lines where you'll see more and more of this totalitarian regime manifest itself into your daily lives and once again most people will adapt to it quite quickly because we're in an age of adaptation adapt or die as they say as they put in flux and there's no normality in anything it constantly changes definitions this is from the progressive magazine February the 7th 2008 by Matthew Rothschild and said that the FBI deputizes business. Today, more than 23,000 representatives of private industry are working quietly with the FBI and Department of Homeland Security. The members of this rapidly growing group called InfraGuard receive secret warnings of terrorist threats before the public does, and at least on one occasion before elected officials. In return, they provide information to the government which alarms the ACLU, but there may be more to it than that. One business executive who showed me his InfraGuard card told me they have permission to shoot to kill in the event of martial law. Think about that for the harder thinking. Shoot to kill in the event of martial law. InfraGuard is a child of the FBI, says Michael Hersham, the chairman of the advisory board of the InfraGuard National Members Alliance and CEO of the Fairfax Group, an international consulting firm. InfraGuard started in Cleveland back in 1996 when the private sector there cooperated with the FBI to investigate cyber threats. The 
when the FBI cloned it, said Phyllis Schneck, chairman of the board of directors of the InfraGuard National Members Alliance and the prime mover behind the growth of InfraGuard over the last several years. InfraGuard itself is still an FBI operation with FBI agents in each state overseeing overseeing the local InfraGuard chapters. Chapters. Interesting. That's what they call some of the Masonic branches. There are now 86 of them. The Alliance is a non-profit organization, the NGOs once again, of private sector InfraGuard members. We are the owners, operators, and experts of a critical infrastructure from the CEO of a large company in agriculture or high finance to the guy who turns the valve at the water utility, said Schneck, who by day is the vice president of research integration at Secure Computing. And you think you're free. At its most basic level, in regards to partnership, a partnership between the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the private sector. Infragard website states, Infragard chapters are geographically linked with FBI field office territories. In November 2001, Infragard has around 1,700 members. As of late January, Infragard had 23,682 members, according to its website, www.infragard.net, which adds that 350 of our nation's Fortune 500 have a representative in InfraGuard. Well, what a surprise. What a surprise. To join, each person must be sponsored by an existing InfraGuard member, exactly the same as Freemasonry, chapter or partner organization. The FBI then vets the applicant. On the application form, prospective members are asked which aspect of the critical infrastructure their organization deals with. These include agriculture, that's your food, banking and finance, the chemical industry, defense, energy, food, information, telecommunications, law enforcement, public health, and transportation. Now, they've missed out there, but it's in there too, is, is your entertainment. Well, from Hamish and myself up here in Ontario, Canada, it's good night. I mean, your God or your gods go with you. <laughs> <laughs>